coming up. Check it out. A podcast from the Moraine Valley Library. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. This is the Check It Out podcast from the Moraine Valley Library. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm the library department chair. And joining me today is retired Moraine Valley faculty member Justin Sinistead. Um, I'm very happy to have him here. Hi, Justin. Hi, Troy. Thanks for asking me. Yes, Justin um, had taught at Moraine. Um, what, what year did you retire? I retired in 2010. That was after 40 years teaching. 40 years teaching. Philosophy, religion. And religion and humanities primarily. A longtime faculty member and, you know, part of the backbone of this institution. So um, we're going to talk today about uh, Justin's recent travels in Cuba and, uh, of course, through the wonders of Facebook. I uh, caught wind of his uh, his voyages and um, saw his travel log that he posted online um, about his trip, and I thought, what a great opportunity for us to talk with one of our friends um, of the college um, about this unique time in the relations between our country and um, our nearby neighbor that is uh, fenced off from us in so many ways. So uh, maybe, Justin, you could just tell us... Um, how you ended up going to Cuba and kind of what what the initial uh, where the plan came from and sure. the logistics. Um, it, I was uh, approached by several friends who travel around the world, and their tour group, which is called Grand Circle, has a nonprofit uh, branch, which it has the uh, goal of trying to give back to those countries and locations that have provided their income. And our country has been easing up its regulations to allow access into Cuba. And as long as there is some kind of uh, supervising agency, in this case a nonprofit organization, uh, nominally called uh, People to People, why uh, that was available. To be perfectly blunt, we were pretty well straightforward tourists, although we did have arranged discussions with various institutions and organizations in, this, in the state, in, in Cuba, and therefore uh, we learned what was going on at some, you might say, upper levels of management and, uh, and organizational things going on. Now, I would guess that some of our students uh, may not know much about the history of our relationship with Cuba. You know, interestingly, it's not making the news as much as it used to. So why is it such a big deal to go to Cuba as opposed to other islands in the Caribbean? Well, before I answer that specifically, I was going to say that uh, we do have uh, access now with the laws are becoming more, uh, more relaxed. And even so, uh, from this side, from the United States, the restrictions are more than they have been from other countries. And I met people from around the world who were traveling more or less independently as tourists. Mm -hmm. But I was part of a group, and it was somewhat uh, managed, you might say. Gotcha. But I wanted to say that anybody who wants to get to Cuba, I do recommend it, and it isn't difficult, and you don't have to skirt around anything or be illegal or... Or Which you would have in the past. In the past, people yeah. have done that, and sometimes they've ended up paying steep uh, fines to our government for violating right. certain immigration laws and so forth. Right. That's okay. So so why does our government care? Or especially, why did they care in the past? Okay, this is part of the history you just asked me about. Um, 
Cuba was under a military dictatorship up until 1953. A man named Batista had been in power, and actually he took part in a military coup that occurred in the 1920s. I can't remember the date. And so he was a dictator, but they were ostensibly able to have elections. He was controlling the elections. But in 1953, he decided to cancel the elections and took over the government by military force and established himself as the permanent leader. Well, Fidel Castro was going to run for president in that 1953 election, and obviously he couldn't make it, so he became a rebel right away with some other acquaintances who were against the dictatorial government, set up a revolutionary movement. And Castro and his friends tried to take over the government in 1956, and they failed rather miserably. But one of Castro's acquaintances, Che Guevara, I think that name's familiar with people, and his name is seen all around the world on posters and so on. Che and Fidel Castro were working together, and Che had better luck. And in a second effort, Castro got onto the island with some of his friends, and he and Che's forces met up with a number of other rebel leaders in other parts of the country. And the long and the short of it is that by 1959, Fidel went triumphantly into Havana, and the previous dictator, Batista, fled the country. So from 1959 until the present moment, Fidel Castro has been the dictator of Cuba. And the underlying reason that we've had rough relations with them was that Batista was a friend to the United States? That's part of it. But the primary forces are that Fidel very quickly began nationalizing, first of all nationalized all the United States holdings in the country, and the United States held a large part of the agricultural land and a majority of the sugar crop and controlling interests in electric power and other things of that sort. So they were nationalized right after Fidel took over. And for our students out there, nationalized basically means the government just took it. Yes, they took it. Owned by the government. Exactly. But then about six years later, Fidel decided to nationalize Cuban businesses by Cuban owners, and so the state took over the business owner properties of very many Cuban civilians, and most of those civilians left the country as a result, and many of them came to the United States, and there's a large Cuban population in southern Florida which continues to be there, and they did represent people who were affluent and influential in Cuba originally, and they maintained their affluence and their influence in the United States, and so the reason the United States has had such restrictive laws and unfriendly relations is primarily because 
A, Cuba is a communist dictatorship, and B, because it has the support, I'm sorry, its expatriate citizens have the support of our government because they are a strong voting minority in our country. And that goes on today. And it's, it's, as you said, eased up a little bit, but in some ways it's a Cold War leftover that we aren't ready to knock down quite yet. Right. Yeah. And okay. what's, what strengthened uh, this thing further was the fact that the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, moved into Cuba almost immediately after right. the revolution, and uh, Fidel and the leaders of the Russian uh, communist system were close friends, and Russia began helping Cuba with uh, primarily with agriculture, but also with industrial development. And kept Cuba alive and uh, discounted various uh, things that the Cubans needed and also helped them develop these enormous state farms so they could make monocrop agriculture and sell the crops abroad and bring in the cash that was necessary. But after the Cuban Missile Crisis and the fall of the uh, Soviet Union, the Soviets pulled out of Cuba and Cuba crashed without that support and people went through a very desperate period uh, as far as food is concerned the intake of ordinary people went by 50% was cut in terms of the calories and people were being helped by uh, aid organizations from around the world some of which are still there but they've gradually pulled themselves up by their bootstraps one way or another and uh, the Cuban dictatorship has had to uh, modify its approach to government and to economic things and give a nod to market economy and so forth. So that's going on gradually now, slowly, forward towards what we might hope for or expect. But I would be quick to say that Cubans are proud of their heritage. They're proud of being socialists. They're proud of having a sense of of a community, and they don't like uh, the kind of crass and materialistic um, presence that the United States presents to uh, other countries, and particularly to them. Hmm. So they're proud people, and they're fun to talk to, and they're beautiful to look at, and uh, they so, have their culture. So as, as an American um, arriving on the shores... Could you talk for a second about um, the landscape? Because I, I do think, you know, getting back to the, the 1959, you know, the, the revolution, it, in some ways it sounded like Cuba is still frozen in the 50s. It is very much. And um, one reason that is is because uh, the Cuban people don't have contact with the rest of the world. There's no telecommunications and there's no uh, Internet connection that isn't controlled by the government. So ordinary people can't use those things, and people who have positions of authority or are trustworthy can. But that keeps people unaware and not free to uh, communicate with people outside of the island. The island itself is uh, about 900 miles from east to west, and... It has a spine of mountains running down the whole length of the island, and on the north and south there are plains. So the mountains level off down to sea level. 
and it's a very beautiful country physically and about 70% of the country is arable is uh, potentially capable of getting into agriculture and maybe 60% of that is actually under uh, cultivation and being used for farming mm -hmm. but recently the, the agricultural system has uh, changed because the state farms that were controlled under the Soviet era were designed like big agricultural factories as they are in our country to produce single large crops for sale and sale abroad and then uh, that could be used to bring money in and provide whatever people need. But when the Soviet Union pulled out, um, that kind of agriculture didn't work. They didn't have places to sell their crops. Because they were selling to the Soviets. They were selling to the Soviets and people in the Soviet, in the communist bloc, Black, the right, okay. Venezuela and so on, are still uh, on good terms. So they had to adjust and they have cooperative farms now and regional farms where the people who live in that area grow whatever they need, a variety of uh, crops and animal products. And uh, they provide their own needs and after giving their quotas to the government, um, then they're able to sell the rest in co-op markets uh, at market prices too. So things are gradually moving towards a market money economy. Gotcha. By the way, when we went there, uh, we had to use what you might call tourist dollars. They're convertible units of currency, CUCs or kooks. And they're worth almost, well, roughly 25 times as much as the local peso currency. And typically, tourists deal in this currency and uh, although I could have exchanged and did exchange my currency and picked up local pesos but people there want very much to get a hold of the cash that comes through the tourist trade and there's a lot of tourism and the majority of the economy is supported by this cash that comes through tourism which, which fascinated me because in my mind I still thought you know Cuba cut off from the world but then um, to find out that they're supporting their economy through tourism. Right. Which is a surprise. Yes. I, I give you a sense. Um, the people that I talk to say that the government provides perhaps half of the needs of everybody for their food uh, requirements, and they provide uh, a, a monthly ration book, and you can go to the state stores and buy staples with that ration book. But that is provided, that provides only perhaps half of what they need. Um, the other half they have to make up however they can. And people try very hard to get connected in some way to the tourist economy. Uh, just to give an illustration, if you were a chambermaid in a tourist hotel, <coughs> you would get cash tips for whatever you're doing, and we were recommended, as is widely done around the world, um, you pay a dollar a head per day to the chambermaid. Mm -hmm. Well, I was with another person in one room, so that's two dollars a day cash. 
while these people were getting paid by the state, their stipend wage was about 12 to $15 a month. A month. Yes. And they were getting $2 a day out of the one room. The one maid was getting $2 a day right. from my room and so presumably six, eight, or ten other rooms. Right. She'll be getting her monthly wage in a day or two. Right. Gotcha. Well, and I found that interesting that because you mentioned that, you know, there's um, housing provided, this level of poverty is like the subsistence level that the government provides and then added income on top. And, yes. And the services, and you do mention that the HIV, you know, AIDS as an example, infection rate is like a sixth of the United States. I mean, right. and so we... It's this, it's poverty, but also still some functional services. Well, the poverty doesn't have such an important, uh, you know, impact on people because it's a state-controlled economy, and all the provisions are made at state expense. So, 95% of the people could be said to be employees of the state, and they get a monthly stipend. Uh, they get an allowance of uh, food ration whether or not they're employed and they get free medicine and subsidized housing and the medicine is very good too and my impression uh, in, in going around the country the bit that I did travel people looked well and happy and they were dressed comfortably and we didn't have a sense of uh, you know the marked poverty that we find in the inner cities and big cities in the United States. So when you um, were able to meet with uh, Cubans, uh, how were you treated as an American once they found out? And I assume that they picked up on your accent that you were. <laughs> there wasn't much question about it. In the first place, um, Americans are typically kept in uh, groups and somewhat uh, monitored or guided by state guides and the tour agency that arranged these things had to work under the agreement with the Cuban government too so we were bussed in a large and by the way Chinese manufactured very slick modern tour bus <laughs> uh, China has a lot of interaction with Cuba but in any case uh, so it's not hard to see that people are American tourists other countries, including Canada and uh, Europe, European countries and other parts of South America and Asia, they're pretty free to come in on their own and they aren't herded around quite so much as the people from the United States are. So it wasn't hard to see we would be tourists and that we are uh, taken to tourist centers and going to the tourist hotels and so forth. <laughs> Having said all that, people were very pleasant for the most part, and I never saw any evidence of people uh, shaking their fists at the Americans. And I know that they're unhappy about the situation, and they don't care much for um, the ways in which their Cuban brothers in the United States continue this uh, the boycotting and other uh, rules that make their lives uncomfortable too, mm -hmm. but they were pleasant, and I had very good conversations and happy times uh, with all the people that I met. Wow! Yeah. Um, so, if you had to sum up your trip, uh, how would you? What's the big picture? What's the big takeaway that we should uh, think about? Well, the thing that was in my head all the time was 
I can't get my brain around this. And I have a pretty good brain, <laughs> and it's old, but it's used to getting a big picture. So I was always looking for uh, something underneath what people were saying or interpreting what I would see of, well, the housing, for example, hasn't been rehabbed in the 53 years that Castro has been there, except the buildings that are government uh, functioning in the tourist region, and then they are all up to snuff and everything's quite elegant. Mm -hmm. But things haven't had a coat of paint or repair, and a lot of things in Havana, for example, are so dilapidated that you hesitate to walk down the alley between buildings in certain areas. Because you worry they may fall down. Yeah, they yeah. really were, <laughs> yes, propped up by two by fours wow. yeah. and a cinder block or something. Um, so there's very little cash there <coughs> to allow them to rebuild, but I get too far aside. Um, my takeaway was I wanted to have a sense about what was going on, and I knew that it was very hard to trust what I was seeing or hearing, either from the sources that I spoke to there or the sources that I've researched, uh, or even my own eyes and ears, very hard to get a big picture and have a sense about what's going on. I do think that things are changing. The Castros are old. Uh, Fidel is 86 and his, his uh, younger brother is 81, Raul. Um, Raul is primarily running the administration of the of the country, and he is changing things according to necessity. Um, people are allowed to uh, buy property now, which is a new law, and some people buy a house and turn it into uh, a privately owned bed and breakfast or a restaurant, or they might have a car that was there in 19... 53, American-made, and maybe they keep patching it up as they are famous for doing and use it as a taxi, and that's their business. Anybody who has a private business is uh, heavily taxed and controlled by the state, and whether or not they make a profit, they're going to pay the money to the state. But I think people uh, would love the people, uh, would love a trip there, would enjoy it, but... Um, hesitate to make too many generalizations uh, before you have an experience. That's, that's my overview. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Is there any other parting thoughts? That, uh... No. Uh, I would go back again, but I would not live there unless I had uh, a job. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go there as a tourist uh, again. again. It, was, it was painful, tough physically, but also uh, emotionally uh, to see the difficulties. I would mention that there is a woman named Ioani Sanchez who has a uh, she's a, a uh, she has a web page. She lives in Cuba and publishes, although as a protester or what you might think of as re rebellious, um, she's under watch by the government, and her uh, her. Uh, blogs and, and, and the website productions are uh, smuggled out of the country by CDs and things like that and then they're, they're sent around the world but if you look at uh, Ioani Sanchez's name you'll see that she gives ordinary uh, descriptions about what everyday life is 
particularly among women, and um, she uh, she'll give you another s side about what uh, isn't quite the way the propaganda comes across. Mm -hmm. Great, maybe um, you could send me that link, and we can link sure. it up on the site yeah. along with this podcast and. Uh, I'll also include a link to your uh, travel logs so that anyone who's listening can look that up and uh, uh, read through all the detail um, on their own. So, okay. All right. Well, I greatly appreciate your time, and it sounds uh, like a fascinating trip. Thank you for the discussion. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Troy. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Library podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.